Which is another funny part. He wants your legal advice. Stop breaking the law, asshole. Which he's telling the truth. Not just to stop breaking the law, but the fact that he's an asshole. <laughs> you gotta remember that he's telling the truth. Yes. <laughs> he's telling the truth that that guy is an asshole. <laughs> All right, sorry. I am very, very excited and proud to kick off 2024. This is episode one, the January episode, and it is called Legally Liar. We've decided to pick, for some reason, two law movies. I think that just kind of fell in our lap because we wanted to do a couple of comedies. Yeah. And then we got a recommendation on Legally Blonde from, I think, your daughters? Yeah, one of them. I mean, I think Caitlin, maybe. Uh, I know Caitlin loves this movie. We actually watched both of these movies uh, on Sunday with everyone over. Uh, nice. All the kids were over. And I had already watched them both earlier in the week because I thought we were going to record last week. Right. <laughs> so it was fun. Um, so in addition to Legally Blonde, which, yeah. again, was a recommendation, we thought, well, that's kind of a law film with comedy what other law comedy can we think of and immediately we both agreed on liar liar starring jim carrey yes and i'm looking forward to breaking both of these down to see if they can arc again the biggest thing on our show when we break down script structure is the arc of the main character and, yeah. and do they have tangible and spiritual goals and and things like that. So I want to start with Legally Blonde, if well, that's all right. Yeah, and before we do, let's talk about our drinks. Now, I'm actually decked out. We're on audio, but I, I got my Metallica Lady Justice shirt on. You know, it was a law theme, so I had to break out my Metallica Lady Justice from Injustice for All. Let me get the ice for my drink. I am putting ice in it. It's bourbon. If it was a good our scotch, first, we wouldn't be... Uh, we're Doing kicking ice. the year off with not just our first disagreement, as we sometimes disagree on movies. We're kicking the year off with a first disagreement of the year with booze. He is drinking. Go ahead and announce it. Yeah, I'm drinking Larceny. It's I I think it's a good, inexpensive bourbon. Now, my brother has a different opinion about that. I think it is a bad, inexpensive bourbon. I, oh, God. <laughs> So I tried larceny. You drink a few of those. It doesn't matter. <laughs> so I tried larceny, and and for the makers of larceny, p please don't be insulted by the massive insult I'm about to give your oh bourbon. My God, dude. I felt, in my opinion, it has a dirt aftertaste. It is earthy. <laughs> it, oh, oh, it, you're drinking the earth, all right. That is definitely. I mean, it is soil. Like real. When I say dirt, I don't mean like garbage. I mean dirt, like okay. out in your front yard. Dirt, like soil. It has that sort of kick after you drink it, like an aftertaste. I finished my bottle, of course. I'm not going to waste any booze. But the entire time, I was like, man, I'm just loading up on soil here. Well, Larceny, um, if you want me to uh, promote it on our podcast again, I will gladly accept a bottle if you want to send me one. And uh, you, you don't know. have to send me one. You can send one to my brother. <laughs> Now, I, on the other hand, I'm doing a little throwback. Last year, for those of you that witnessed it, we actually did our first video cast as well yep. with uh, our our uh, buddy Lee over at Lights, Camera, Rant, where we did a YouTube two-hour-and-a-half video breaking down Jaws versus Jaws 4. On that show, my drink of choice was the Sharkarita. It was basically a margarita with blue curacao in it and make it blue. I have revisited that today oh, because God. what are lawyers— <laughs> 
Lawyers are sharks. Uh. So I am bringing out my Sharkarita in honor of both the video cast we did last year and to kick off 2024 with a couple of shark movies that aren't really about sharks, about lawyers. All I know is your tongue and lips are going to be blue. Oh, yeah, they're going to be. Yep. But I'm also backing up with my my talls. I have my tall backups, my lightsabers. Cheers. Cheers to 2024. Let's jump in. So before we kick it off, how was your new year? I suspect it's going to be great because yeah. it's December still here. Okay, but <laughs> as see, we record for the, for the audience, <laughs> we're we're supposed to be acting like this is January. Yeah. Well, Happy New Year, Jer. Happy New Year to you. Mine was awesome. <laughs> I hope it is now, so that I can live up to that. Okay, let's start with Legally Blonde. Before I get into the specs, let's talk a little bit about our relationship. I just saw this movie for the first time. To prepare for this podcast. Wow, really? Yeah. I don't know. It was one of those things that just sort of got by me. I was aware of it. You know, we talked before on a previous podcast about, like, Hugo. Hugo, I didn't even I, I, I didn't even know it existed. Like, I was just like, <laughs> I, I don't know how I did. I missed it. It being an, a multi-Oscar name in it. Oscar-nominated Scorsese film. I don't know how I missed it. But this one I was aware of. I knew that it catapulted Reese Witherspoon as, a, as an A-list a single lead. What I mean by single lead is I think before this she did a few films where she was kind of a lead with other leads, like opposite a male lead, like in Walk the Line. But this was the first time she was asked to carry a film on her own. Mm-hmm. And it, it it was a huge success. And it catapulted her into being a leading lady to where she can she doesn't need a male counterpart or another lead. She was the lead of this. So I was aware of its place in the world. And, and its place in Reese Witherspoon's life. And I knew it was successful. I just never got around to it. I don't know what it was. I never got around to it. But I'm happy to say I watched it twice for this podcast. So I just had to look you? it up. We, we talked about Walk the Line before. <laughs> this came out a few years before Walk the Line. Walk the Line mm-hmm. was 2005. This mm. What was this, 2001? Yes. This yeah. was 2001. Now, I, I, I have to go back then and look to think of what I was thinking of. She had a couple movies before this where she was sharing the lead role with somebody, and I can't remember what they were. But yeah, maybe Cruel Intentions. Maybe you know, she's not really the lead. Ryan Phillippe's kind of the lead. You know, it's kind of like one of the. She had a few of those. Yeah, I think she had a few of those movies. But this was definitely her first leading lady. I'm carrying this movie by myself. Yeah. But anyway, how about you? Well, I, I don't remember the first time I saw it, but I, I was going to ask you, did you watch it with your daughters? Because that's when I, I think that's how I was introduced to it, because my daughters all loved this movie. So, No, I show my daughters Jaws and Die Hard <laughs> and Alien. I haven't gotten around to showing Just kidding. Just kidding, folks. So, before but, yeah. before you all call Department of, was it uh, Children's Services? Or whatever. Yeah. No, I didn't watch it. I, I don't think I saw it when it first came out you know so i probably it was probably a date night with my wife type movie we rented or something um but i've seen it a million times over the years my in 2001 um i you know my daughters were very young and probably didn't at least my oldest was yeah she was nine so i doubt she saw it then uh but in a few years she would have and that's when i i've seen it many times over the years okay i have it in my side notes here yeah i'll get to it when we get to the side notes but just real quick, since we were talking about it, the three films I was referencing, Fear with Mark Wahlberg, Pleasantville with Tobey Maguire, 
and election with Matthew Broderick. So mm-hmm. she was the female lead in all three of those, mm-hmm. but those were more male dominated yeah. films. You know, she wasn't the main arc of any of the stories. Right, right. You know what I mean? I mean, I guess you could argue she might have had an arc in fear. I don't know. I'd have to break that one down. But mostly those were other people's films. Yeah. This was her first time being tasked with this. You know, this was a make or break film. If this movie tanks, Reese Witherspoon's only making fears and Pleasantvilles for the rest of her life. Mm. You know what I mean? So I think we have walked the line because of this film. Mm. At least we have Reese Witherspoon and walked the line because of this. But anyway, let me get to my specs here. 2001, based on the novel, the same name by Amanda Brown, screenplay by Karen McCullough and Kristen Smith. They are a writing team who worked together often. Previously, before they did this film, they did 10 Things I Hate About You with Heath Ledger. This film was directed by Robert Lukatic, I think is how you pronounce his name, Lukatic. It was his first feature film. Interesting to note. He did go on to direct some notable films such as 21 and The Ugly Truth. This film was released on July 13th, 2001. It finished its box office run. Get this now. We're talking about Reese Witherspoon being asked to carry a film by herself. Mm -hmm. And a comedy, right? It finished its run with $96 million at the box office. That's just domestic. That's not even worldwide. Wow. Which is about $166 million in today's numbers. And it put it at twenty the 22nd highest grossing movie of the year, which sounds low, like on a list. It was a good was year, tw- I guess. It was 22nd. <laughs> good year. Yeah, good year for like Pixar and Disney and shit like that. And <laughs> but, but ultimately, I mean, that's a pretty good haul for a comedy being carried by somebody who hadn't carried a film on their own before. Did you say the budget? How much I did not. Spent? I don't know how much it, it, it cost to make, but it couldn't have been a lot. Right. There, you know, there were no really, I, again, Reese wasn't an A-lister yet. You know what I mean? And this movie, I think, catapulted her star stature. Yeah, I'm trying to remember. There wasn't any big special effects like in Liar, Liar with Jim Carrey on the airport <laughs> tarmac well, at the yeah. end. <laughs> but see, Jim Carrey himself is a special effect. So, <laughs> But we'll get to that. There's some trivia on that one when we get to, when we get to Liar, Liar. So, okay. All right. <clears throat> this is the part where my brother usually uh, gives me the log line. Yeah, I so, got it right here. Let me ask, log me. Well, according to IMDb, Elle Woods, a fashionable sorority queen, is dumped by her boyfriend. She decides to follow him to law school. While she is there, she figured out that there is more to her than just looks. That's okay. All, that's all it tells us. But uh, Fair, fair. That's fair. Okay. All right. Are we ready? <clears throat> yeah, let's go. All right. We have... The Beats. Here come the Beats. Opening image. Now, this is a nice... Remember, we've talked about this before, where the opening and closing image should be bookends of the same story, and it's just slightly different at the end because of the journey that happens in between. Um, Hoku's song Perfect Day is playing at the beginning while she's getting dressed, while she's getting ready. That'll be important because Perfect Day is also playing at the end, closing image too. Same song. Also a perfect day, but a lot has changed. So the setup, intro to Elle Woods, sorority super queen. Um, It's hinted that she may fall on the side of like an airheaded blonde. Mm-hmm. It's only hinted at that. That They do a really good job of making sure the audience doesn't think she's dumb. Right. But they also make sure 
so that the audience thinks that everybody else thinks she's dumb, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And that's a that's a line you got to dance on. Yeah. To where why does everyone think she's dumb if she's not dumb? I well, can, I can only imagine it. it I mean, they did a good job because it'd be a difficult line. It'd be easy. Let me put it this way. It'd be easy to step too too far onto either side of that, right? And, and right. where the, the audience is like, either thinks she's just dumb. She is right. dumb. Or so, but, but the, the way it was written and exactly. directed was really well done. So, And that's clever because you can't, you won't have a story otherwise. Mm-hmm. The whole point is she's following her boyfriend to Harvard. Mm-hmm. She's not sniffing Harvard. If she's stupid, right? So so she is intelligent. They do make a point to let people know, particularly in the field of creativity, right, and fashion, but she is smart. But everybody perceives her to be like a dumb blonde, yeah. right? Including her boyfriend. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Who actually uh, call, okay. yeah, calls her well, a Jackie. We'll, or no, we'll get there. A, a, we'll, uh, Marilyn. Uh, a Marilyn. But we'll get there. We'll get there. <laughs> All right. Yeah, that's one of my beats. Let's not, let's not jump it here. Let's, let's go in order. I always jump ahead. All right, all right. So theme stated at the four minute mark, a snotty snails saleswoman, I almost said snails woman, a snotty saleswoman says, and this is a quote, there's nothing I like more than a dumb blonde with daddy's plastic. Mm-hmm. All right. That's the theme L is L Woods is gonna run through the entire film. Yep. Everybody thinks she's just a dumb blonde with daddy's plastic. It's up to her yeah. to prove herself. Well, and I love that scene because you end that scene with her proving herself. Right, right. <laughs> well, that's the that's the crucial part of letting the audience know that she is intelligent. Right, right, right. right. Uh, she puts that salesperson in her place, like, <laughs> big time. And, and again, although this is Elle's first chance to let the audience know she's not dumb, by, by setting that trap for the saleswoman, it is going to serve throughout the film. You're going to see where where people sort of, I, I mean, it's easy to say that they misjudge her. That's that's like an easy one. But it, it's deeper than that. She's got more to prove. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it's not just, I'm going to prove to you I'm smart by telling you that I know the designer of this dress when you thought I didn't. It's got to go bigger than that. And we're yeah. going to go bigger as the stakes get raised. She's going to prove to them she's more than a dumb blonde, or won't she? That's the pivotal question. Yeah. Will she prove herself or won't she prove herself? Will she, won't she? I, I put here, you're going to find there's a strong emotional shift where one scene she's being treated like the dim-witted fashionita, and other scenes she's impressing people with her knowledge. Mm-hmm. And they will go almost every other scene, Yeah. right? Yeah. And we've talked about that emotional shift, right? That emotional tug of war. Uh, where it goes back and forth throughout the film as she's driven towards her spiritual goal. Now, remember what her tangible goal is. This is important. What's her tangible goal? What is it that she wants? Get her boyfriend back. Just to get her boyfriend back, right? Just to get her boyfriend back. Warner, by the way. What a douche. (laughs) Guy is a great A douche with a great A douche name. Sorry for all of you out there to name Warner. It's not an attack on you. All right. Inciting incident. The catalyst. After Warner breaks up with Elle. Now, here's another thing. A lot of people would say that the catalyst is the breakup. I don't think so. Because that's not driving her into act two, right? She's She has, well, okay, it is. This is what we call a double bump. Remember we talked about this on Star Wars? Yeah. Where seeing the hologram of, of Princess Leia saying, help me, Obi-Wan Kenobi, you're my only hope, isn't enough to drive Luke into right. Act 2. He's got to go home and see that Aunt Brew and Uncle Owen have been turned uh, into toast. 
by Boba Fett. Hot take. <laughs> right. um, but anyway, <laughs> I bring that up every time. That's sort of like that's what uh, Blake Snyder would call a double bump. So it. So here's this is also a double bump. Mm-hmm. So the breakup is the first part, mm-hmm. right? The breakup is the first part. Warner breaks up with her and he calls her a Marilyn, not a Jackie. Ah, yeah. That, that was a burn. That was a stinger <laughs> right there. And then, and then she find, kind of finds herself in that bonbons stage, right, where she's just watching soap operas and stuff. And then she go, and her friends try to cheer her up by taking her out for a spa, right, a day spa. She reads about Miss Vanderbilt, and this is the important person that she's now like. This is who I have to be right. in order to get Warner back. She probably would have stayed in depression state for a while. Yeah, yeah. Maybe she forever. saw her, and she realized, oh, she's a law student. That's, yes. That's what she realized. Right. So she sees that and yeah. she's like, that's what's going to get him back. So it's the double bump. It's the breakup and then that. And that forces her into her break into two. Mm-hmm. So she succeeds in passing the LSAT, which there's a funny little segment there, right, of her trying to the video that she records of herself. Yeah. And then and in a bikini, she, she gets her video reviewed and gets into Harvard Law. And that's another funny scene, too, where all the board members are like. <laughs> Well, all right. Welcome to Harvard, L. Woods. You know, because bunch of she stuffy it. white guys in suits. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> judging her. Yeah, yeah. Judging her, right? Yeah. All right. So it's 19 minutes into the film, which is a little early for a break into two. Usually those come around 20, 25 minutes, half hour. But for an hour and a half comedy, 19 minutes is right in that sweet spot, right? We're used to watching two hour, two and a half hour dramas or yeah. action films. And, and the break into two would come a half hour in. But we're talking about a, a comedy that's a, an hour and a half long. Right. You know what right. I mean? So you got to get there a little quicker. So 19 minutes is right in that sweet spot, as Costanza would say, right in the meaty part of the curve. <laughs> all right. So, all right. So now we're in Act Two. What is Act Two? The mirror flip of Act One. The fun and games begins. This is stuff you see in the trailer, right? This is the premise delivery. Why we go and see the film. It's her at Harvard. Right. And we're bombarded with a bunch of little things like when she first shows up yeah. and everybody just stops and stares. It's like the record stopping yeah, when they somebody walks in. Barbie. Yeah, they call her Barbie. What they call her Malibu Barbie or something? I can't <laughs> <Malibu> remember. Barbie. <laughs> she's now in a new world and she's got plenty of clashes. And these are the comedic moments. Now, there's also I put literally three scenes in a row that will establish three important characters. And they come one right after another, two of which could be argued as the B story. Now remember, what is the B story? Well, the B story, the B story character is the one that's going to sort of help the lead, right? Kind of give them advice. Yeah. G- give them a little bit. When we t- when we talk about the second film, the B story is altered a little bit in that film because it's more of a story that has magic in it. Mm. Uh, we call that person the um, the confidant, mm-hmm. the one that knows, kind of knows the truth. Um, but we'll get to that. And you've mentioned before, quite often the B story has their own arc to the, to the, to the character. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, and I believe uh, they do here too. Go back and watch Die Hard if you want to, if <laughs> yeah. you want to talk. Oh, oh, but at the time that you're hearing this, the Die Hard episode was already released. Yes. Yes. At Christmas. It was our Christmas special, but we did talk about how you can arc supporting characters too to make your, your story a little bit more filled with, mm-hmm. uh, uh, a lot of meat. Okay, so here's the three characters that are introduced literally in a row in three straight scenes. First, the villain, Vivian. My daughter's name, by the way. I was a little... <laughs> when I saw that, I was like, ugh. But it's spelled differently, so that's okay. okay. Uh, the villain, Vivian, is introduced uh, in the class that Elle gets kicked out of for being unprepared. 
What does she do when she gets kicked out of the class? She goes outside and immediately meets Emmett, the future love interest. We're going to call him B-Story 1. Uh, Emmett is played by who? It's What's his name? Luke Wilson. Luke Wilson, yeah. Possible of, oh, by the way, Vivian is played by Selma Blair. Yes. Who Reese Witherspoon was in Cruel Intentions with. Mm-hmm. But anyway, a possible love interest and a helper character on how to advance her business journey. Here's why she's going to have two B stories. Emmett represents helping her in her business life, right? Then at the 32-minute mark, now remember, we jumped into Act 2 at the 19-minute mark. But at the 32-minute mark, so we've had roughly, what is that, 13 minutes of fun and games. We've had 13 minutes of that mirror flip, right? Those trailer scenes, as we might call them. At the 32-minute mark, which I even noted here as a known sweet spot for the B-Story character, usually about a half hour in, we meet Paulette. Paulette is the nail salon girl who's going to serve as B-Story 2, and she will be the helper character on how to advance her inner strength. Yeah, played by uh, Jennifer Coolidge. Yes, a, 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 per, great. a great. I love her and everything she's in, man. I love. You know what? One of these days we should do best in show. Yeah. That would be the. I I love her in that movie. I love her in everything, but but I don't want to get off on a tangent. But best in show is one of the funniest movies I ever saw. Right. But all right. So, so she's helper character too, right? Jennifer Coolidge plays Paulette. Now, this is important to ha- why she has two B stories. Again, one is the love interest. Kind of. We don't know that yet. But he is serving as the helper for her business career, mm-hmm. and Paulette serves as the inner, the 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 inner's, you know, her inner strength. Right. Another example of push and pull of the emotional shifts driving Elle to her spiritual goal. They're back to back scenes. First, she's humiliated at the costume party when she's told it's a costume party and it's not. But then she decides to take Harvard seriously, buckle down, and eventually proves people wrong immediately when she helps Paulette get her dog back. So there's the back-to-back scenes is she shows up at the party, right, Mm -hmm. wearing the bunny suit. Yeah. Humiliated. I love that in spite of the humiliation, though, she just charged forward. Trucks on. (laughs) She doesn't go home crying. She trucks on. And then the very next scene... Still, I want to say she's still wearing the bunny suit when she's buying all the school supplies and oh, a new yeah. computer and everything, a new laptop. I don't right? remember. Was she? And Emmett, and Emmett is like behind her in line, and he's like, hey. And then he looks at what she's wearing, and he's like, all right. you know." <laughs> so I thought it was kind of funny and almost symbolic of her of her theme and her emotional shifts that she didn't even go home and change first she went to go buy those school supplies in her bunny outfit anyway (laughs) all right so midpoint scene l impresses professor callahan enough to be awarded a place on his legal team for an important case he's working on now why is this a false victory right we often say that the midpoint scene is the false victory and that's usually usually when you get your tangible goal Mm -hmm. right this is as close as she's going to get to her tangible goal because Warner all of a sudden is impressed as hell, mm-hmm. right? I know there's that whole part at the end. We'll get to that. But this is definitely a false victory because in the second half, we know that her involvement with the case is really going to test her drive to her spiritual goal and ultimately what people think of her, mm-hmm. right? Immediately after the mid- midpoint, we always go into the, what do we call it? The bad guys closing in with the second half of the film, things start to go to shit. Yeah. Right. It's not going to be all as cracked up to be when she's on his legal team. You could argue that L achieves, like I said, at least a large part, her, her tangible goal of getting Warner back. He's not back, but at this point, he no longer sees her as a Marilyn. She's now a Jackie. Right. 
So all these are false victories because we know what's coming next. Now, bad guy closing in. L gets the important info from Brooke Taylor that could uh, directly defect the case. So that was the the big news going into the second half of the film is that she knows the defendant mm-hmm. of the girl that they're they're going to try. They're going to try this case. And it's a former sorority queen herself right. from her sorority. And she gets an important piece of info of where she was that day, her alibi. But she gave her her sorority secrecy pledge not to ever tell. Right. Of course, this sets a ripple off in the legal <laughs> team, right? So now they're kind of pissed, but it does change villain Vivian's view of her. Right. right. So now the villain is starting to kind of change yeah, her, she, her. Her story arc is, is arcing. <laughs> yes. She's arcing at yeah. this point. Because she, she's I arcing. Mean, yeah. She admires her for holding her, her ground. Yeah. Yes. A lot of shit is going on now. And with the case seemingly hanging by a thread, Elle uses her creative instincts to out the pool boy as gay, which would, while he's on the stand, mind you, Great. which would negate him from having an affair with the defendant, which is what the uh, prosecution was trying to claim all along. Yeah, and, yeah, and a great scene great there. Scene. She wins everyone over. <laughs> you emotional bitch. Sh- yeah. <laughs> Uh, I put emotional shift is at an all-time high, so you'd think that she'd reached her spiritual goal by being taken seriously. Until the all is lost. Impressed with her moves, Professor Canelahang proves to be a scumbag and makes a pass at her. Vivian, of course, sees this and confronts her in the elevator, forcing her to want to quit. So right when she was at her high, and again, that's a perfect emotional shift. You go from a high like, man, I've cracked this case wide open. And now the guy that I trusted and thought was a great legal mind and respected beyond anything, maybe this is somebody that can help me get a job someday, wants to bone her. Right? right. I mean, what a letdown. Right? What a huge letdown. He was such, um, such a stand-up guy on the Titanic, too. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> shit, wasn't his name? Uh, I don't remember his it? name on Titanic. Mr. Andrews. Mr. Andrews. Mr. Andrews. <laughs> Sick how my mind works. All right. So Dark Knight of the Soul. This always comes right after the all is lost. And again, the Dark Knight of the Soul could be two seconds, could be five seconds, could be five minutes. It's usually the debate of what is the main character going to do now and how are they going to catapult into the third act? Elle's Dark Knight of the Soul. She's ready to leave. She literally goes to Paulette to say goodbye when Professor Stromwell overhears all this and talks her out of it, talks her out of leaving, right? Stromwell is the one that kicks her out of the class in the beginning of the movie. Right. But while she's there getting her hair done or whatever, she hears this whole story and she's like, no, 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 you can't quit now. You can't leave. You know what I mean? Like, and she gives her this big pep talk, which is interesting because this is where Paulette would come in. Hmm. Paulette's not the one that gives her the pep talk, though. Professor Stromwell is. Yeah. And I think that's important because she had to go to Paulette to see Miss, to see Professor Stromwell. If she never went to Paulette's salon to say goodbye, this never would have happened. Yeah. So Paulette still is an anchoring figure. She did go there. But I think she needed that legal advice from somebody other than Emmett, who at this point is another guy that could just possibly just be trying to get in her pants. So it just occurred to me, Paulette has a story arc too. Absolutely. (laughs) Almost all three of the the four, if you want to include Emmett, but they don't really focus on Emmett's too much. So Uh, I wouldn't say Emmett arcs very well. Yeah, so Vivian has one. Yeah, I would say say the three leading women all arc pretty well. Yes. Okay, break into three. Not only does Elle agree to stay and seek out Brooke to help them. Oh, she not only agrees to stay, but she seeks out Brooke to help them with their plans. 
five-point finale. Here we are. Are you ready? <laughs> yeah, let's go. Number one, gathering the team. Brooke fires Callahan and puts Elle in charge with Emmett backing her up, which, by the way, when I was first watching this for the first time, I yelled out, can't happen. She doesn't have a degree. She's not. She has never passed the bar. But they quickly covered that up. They covered that. With, yeah, they covered that with, oh, it's temporary and the judge can allow it. There's and a Supreme and I'm like, Court decision allowing it. And, blah, blah, and blah. I'm on my chair and I'm all, boo. <laughs> like, that's cheap. Don't give me that bullshit. But anyway, it worked. I accepted it. I, it worked. It worked I was like, for the okay. story. They had to find a way to get Ellen charged. But okay, so yeah, Ellen's yeah. in charge now. And she was being oversought by uh, an attorney. Yeah. Yeah. Emmett was there to back her up. Uh, Execution of the plan. Elle questions Chutney on the stand, hoping to catch her in a lie. Um, Hightower surprise. Chutney shuts down Elle with her strategy by telling her she was in the shower. And it seems almost foolproof. Right. Her, Her badgering her on the stand has now hit a brick wall. Oh, shit. What can I do about this? I can't do anything about this. Certainly the noise from the shower would block out any noise of a gunshot and pretty much has given her an alibi. So what's the next point of the bit of the five point finale? Dig down deep. Elle has to think, how can I get out of this now? I've been hit with a brick wall and she comes up with the perm story. Right. And decides to set the trap. Execution of the new plan. Elle gets Chutney to confess to the murder after the perm story crashes her shower alibi, which leads us, of course, to the final climax. Case is dismissed as Chutney is arrested and Brooke freed, which, again, (laughs) I'm in my chair going, that's not how it works. Like, they don't arrest the person right then and there. I don't think anyway. I don't I mean, if you confess to a murder (laughs) on the stand, I mean, why not? It was so dramatic it in a was, movie way, yeah, though, you yeah. know, like it was so movie ending wise. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I guess so. But it was almost like and we're going to have one of these in the next movie, too, where he's being dragged out of the courtroom with one of my favorite scenes of that movie. I'm Jose Canseco. Yeah. But anyway, so we kind of have that here where Chutney's being dragged off. And I'm like, what is it with these dramatic court scene endings in these comedies? Oh, Drew, um, Drew Carey, Jim Carrey. I mean, he is just over the top dramatic, period. End of story. (laughs) Yeah. So, and and again, there's a point to that I'm going to make in the next movie. Resolution. Tangible and spiritual goals collide as Warner proposes to L. right? That's the part I said earlier about, I know that thing that happens at the end. You would think that that's when she reached her tangible goal. I actually think she reaches it at the midpoint because at that point, Warner's already respecting her. And that's kind of the the point of her journey. But he does propose at the end. She shoots him down, of course, and goes on to graduate Harvard without him. Closing image, that song Perfect Day is playing again, only this time it's, it's she's a proven, taken seriously law grad. A complete 180 from where she was. Remember, again, the opening and closing images only work if you take the character at the end and put them at the beginning, are they a different person? Right. Absolutely. Right. right? Yeah, Elle at the end of this movie is 100% different from how she is at the beginning of the movie. So I'm going to do a couple of note, quick notes here about the arc. This is about as clean as an arc as you can get, right? The tangible goal is clear, yeah. right? The, what, what are some of the things we argue about in, in these podcasts? That sometimes the arc is fuzzy because the goals are fuzzy. Mm-hmm. Like, we don't even know what the hell they want. Like, what is it they want? We don't even know what the hell they need. Not in this film. The tangible goal is pretty clear, to get Warner back. The spiritual goal, which she did not know she needed, was to earn widespread, widespread respect from everyone and prove she's not just a dumb blonde. Right. Yeah. So that's about as clean as you can get on, on a character arc. And and, it, and it's a home run all the way through. So some funny moments I also wanted to mention. 
Elle's dog growls at Vivian the first time she meets her. I don't know if you noticed that. The first time she meets Vivian in the hallway, the dog growls at her. (laughs) But the next time they see each other, while the dog has no idea that Vivian's begun her arc to starting to be a good good person, the dog licks her. He doesn't growl anymore. He licks her. Now, how the hell would the dog know that she's arcing, right? (laughs) Dogs know. They have a way. I, they, they actually do. Uh, but I put a note in here. What is up with the UPS driver and his package? That dude is Randy. I mean, he is just thirsty for Jennifer Coolidge. Every time he comes in, he's got something to say about his package. Yeah, it's, now, it's over I the top it. and hilarious. Way though. over the great. top. Way over the top. Um my best LOL moment. So sometimes I hope I have like to my package. I have to name a part that I actually laugh out loud in. Like, this is a movie I laughed kind of throughout the film, but there's always one scene that makes me burst out, right? And <laughs> it could have been because I was already having a, I was already a few drinks in at this point because it's near the end. But it's when Elle's friends come into the courthouse. <laughs> and they're all, oh, how cute. They have a judge and everything. <laughs> oh, look, there's the jury. Like, I mean, I, I don't know. She calls them jury people. The jury look, there's people. there's the jury people. <laughs> But when they she first when they first come in and the girl goes, Oh, how cute they have a judge. I fucking lost it, man. I burst it out. How cute they have a judge. Right. Like like as if it was just something that was made up on TV until this point. Yeah. Right? <laughs> so all right. So a few more side notes before I turn it back over to you for your thoughts. I already mentioned this before. Reese Witherspoon prior to this was in movies like Fear, Election, Pleasantville, but after this movie, she carried Sweet Home Alabama, Vanity Fair, her Oscar-winning role in Walk the Line. Now, you could argue that was a dual lead, but she was the female lead and one best actress. And the movie Wild also came out after this movie, much, much later, but also was Oscar-nominated as best actress for that. I even wrote here, all of which, with the possible exception of Walk the Line, she was the lead tasked with carrying the film, and all of those films I mentioned were successful at the box office. Every single one, even Vanity Fair. Now... She's, she's while, had a pretty good run. While it has had, <laughs> while it had zero Academy Award nominations, it was nominated for Best Picture, Music or Comedy, and Best Actress for Reese Witherspoon for Music or Comedy at the Golden Globes. It lost both to Moulin Rouge. Mm. And I think rightfully so. Moulin Rouge is a masterpiece. I thought that was a fantastic film. So I could see that winning all those awards. There was Oscar buzz surrounding Reese, though, but in 2001, it was a tough year. Here were the four women that were up for Best Actress and lost. I'm going to tell you the ones that first lost, okay? Renee Zellweger in Bridget Jones's Diary. Nicole Kidman in Moulin Rouge. Right off the bat, th- th- those first two are musical comedy, musical or comedies. So, you know, when they say at the Oscar race, usually only one is going to be a musical or comedy, right? Like the other ones, drama usually carries the show with the Oscars, right? Right. So we're already two nominations are being taken up with a musical or comedy movie. Reese would have to crack one of the remaining spots. Judy Dench and Iris, now we're getting into dramas and people that win a lot of Oscars or at least get nominated for a lot. And Sissy Spacek for In the Bedroom. Which, by the way, was my favorite movie of that year. So, remember what we was talking about? I always have that one favorite that I love more than everything else? Yep. In the Bedroom is my favorite movie of 2001. I think it's the best movie of 2001. It's something we may have to pick apart sometime. All right. Who they lost to? Who did those four actresses that I just named lost to? Halle Berry in Monster's Ball. Hmm. 
monster powerful performance. So no pun intended by throwing monster in there. But so as you can see, tough year, right? Very tough year. Judy Dench gets nominated no matter what she does. She could take a dump and they would nominate her for best excretion. So <laughs> so uh, so that was a t- that's a tough year for Reese to get in. But as you as you well know already, and I already mentioned it, she ends up winning Best Actress for Walk the Line. She right. gets nominated again for Wild. You you could say that Reese Witherspoon's had one of the better A list careers oh, yeah. for an actress, and she started a book club. So there you go. There you go. <laughs> and I would argue that a lot of it comes back to this movie. Now, you never want to say, well, without this movie, we don't have any of that. Because she's obviously talented enough. She she would have made those things happen. But this was definitely a springboard. It was definitely a stepping stone. I mean, you yeah. take her career and look at it, none of it would have happened without Reese Witherspoon. <laughs> right. You know? Of course. So, <laughs> give she deserves all the credit, man. Um, yes, absolutely. So, so, what are your thoughts? I only have a couple. Fun movie to watch. I mean... Just pure enjoyment. So I didn't really spend a lot of time analyzing. I just enjoyed it. One of my daughters pointed out, I don't remember who said it. Like I said, we had a house full of people over. But it was they just had an observation of, wow, it's the ultimate white privilege where she just assumes she's going to get into Harvard. Absolutely. <laughs> like, why wouldn't I? I've been, but here, but here's the I've been given everything my whole life. She does. <laughs> I know. She does, yeah. She does. Yeah, it's just a funny observation, but. Yeah, yeah. It is totally a white privilege movie. There's only one scene that other people love because I saw it online. I, I wanted to I wanted to go check out, like, see what the buzz is about this. <laughs> and I saw a lot of feedback. Everybody loves this scene, and I just it just didn't work for me. It was the bend and snap scene, or what was it called? Is that, is yeah, that what it was? she breaks bend his nose. <laughs> where she, well, no, but no, 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 no. That's the funny. Oh, the part. dance scene where but they it teach was the her how to. Dance scene where yeah, she teaches all of them how to do that. I didn't get it. It went right over my head. I'm like, I don't even know what that means. Yeah, to me, it was it, it, it was kind of a filler scene. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. Just yeah. they we needed to, uh, you know. Yeah. Worst scene in the movie Stepmom with Billy Roberts. It was, it was fun Sarandon. though. It was a fun scene to watch. Okay. So worst scene of Stepmom, which is the Julia Roberts Susan Sarandon movie, yeah. is the musical interlude where they all start singing, uh, yeah. you know, Mountain High Enough or whatever, blah, blah blah, and they're all dancing around the bed. Like I don't need that. That scene is kind yet. of weird though because that. It's not a, really a comedy. That movie wasn't really a comedy. Which one, Stepmom? Yeah. So it's kind of weird to throw a musical scene in the middle of yeah, it. Yeah, and I think it started off as supposed to be comedic, like the clash of the stepmom is a complete polar opposite of the real mom. But you're right. It turns into a drama pretty quick. Yeah, yeah. And and when someone's and, dying of cancer. I mean, but you know, I want to say in the in the late '90s, early 2000s, movies did that shit a lot. They do that, and remember the Titans, where they just have a musical scene where all the players start singing. Like, I don't need that shit. That ain't f- forwarding the story at all. Now, remember the Titans? You could argue, well, that was how they built unity. Eh, you know, when they got into a fight at camp and all came together after that, that was the unity. I don't need a song. Yeah, you know. So, th- so scenes like that just drive me nuts. So when I see this bend and snap scene or whatever it was, I still I'm think. Like, I mean, for a fun, funny comedy, I mean, it worked. Now, don't me. get me wrong. The payoff was great when yeah. she tries it. Yeah, when she on tries package, it, man, busts his nose open. His nose. <laughs> I when that happened, I remember thinking, okay, a now, now I kind of see where the payoff is. But two, that totally would have been me. That would have been something I would do, where I try to do something cute and impressive, and I fucking break someone's nose. Um, 
So, yeah. All right. Anything else? No, let's get on to Liar Liar. All right. Moving right Hold along. On. First thing, I, I better uh, refill my drink here. I actually, because I've been doing a lot of talking. See, yeah, you, that's where I need you. That's where I need you to pick up on more shit so I can drink more. All right. Liar Liar. All right. Here's the specs. 1997, uh, written by Paul Gway and Stephen uh, Mazur. Uh, they're they're also writing partners. Interestingly enough, it's funny you'll find that right, writing partners in comedies. And why do you find that a lot? We just saw it in the previous film. We're going to see it in this one. And of course, one of the famous writing partnerships of all time when it comes to comedies is Lowell Gantz and Mabalu, uh, Babalu Mandel, who wrote a lot of Ron Howard movies, right? Parenthood. You know what I mean? Like those guys wrote. I I want to say they were in on some of those early Michael Keaton movies too. I'll, pause for effect right by the microphone <laughs> yeah so why do you why is it common to see writing partners in a comedy the Farrelly brothers another perfect example to some extent the Coen brothers even though their films are dark comedy mm. why does it usually take a writing team to write really good comedies because writing comedy is one of the hardest things anybody can do because just because you think it's funny doesn't mean anybody else will either. Mm -hmm. So having a writing partner that you can help bounce ideas off of yeah. makes it a lot easier. So this was also a writing partnership. They previously did Little Rascals in 1994 and later went on to do Heartbreakers in 2001. Do, do you this, know any trivia surrounding like how much of their writing was just replaced with Jim Carrey's improv? We're going to get to that. Because holy crap, man. I mean, um, even in the yeah. outtakes, you can tell there was a lot of improv that didn't even make it. <laughs> Every Jim Carrey movie. But we'll, we'll get to that. It's just so this gold. It's pure gold. <laughs> is directed by Tom Shadiak, whose other credits include Ace Ventura, Pet Detective, in 94, The Nutty Professor, 96, and Patch Adams in 98. These, among others, he's done other stuff, but I picked these three out specifically. Let's assume we put Liar Liar to the side for a moment. Ace Ventura, Jim Carrey. Nutty Professor, Eddie Murphy. Patch Adams, Robin Williams. What are the th similarities between those three people? Say it again. I, <laughs> I, was, okay. I was looking at IMDb, sorry. Okay, so got putting busted, a liar, liar not, aside. Not listening I, to you. I, I, I got you but I'm going to kick you out of class like Elle Woods. Ace Ventura, Jim Carrey. Yeah. Nutty Professor, Eddie Murphy. And Patch Adams, Robin Williams. What are those three character those three actors have in common i don't know well what would you I mean, characterize them as well they're all stand-up comedians they're all comedians but they're all very exhibitionist very showman like oh, sure. comedians right like everything's physical comedy with those three right yeah so why do you think tom shadiak keeps getting hired to do these kinds of movies well he's good at it because he's got that <laughs> reputation right these guys all talk to each other yeah you know that jim carrey he did ace ventura with him you know he was like oh i want this guy for liar liar yeah and then you know that eddie murphy called him up hey how's this guy get him get him he lets you do whatever the fuck you want right like he has <laughs> right. great control of the set but at the same time he lets you off your leash robin williams another one you know tom shadyx probably just loves just setting the camera up and saying all right robin do your thing go. you know what i mean like just go <laughs> i'm not even gonna yell action i'm just gonna i'm just gonna put it on and you just do your thing yeah um so you know there's a reason why these guys keep getting the same jobs right because word of mouth in hollywood if, if, if Eddie Murphy wants to produce a $100 million comedy that he's going to star in, you bet your ass he's going to want a director that's going to let him do his thing. Right. All right, so it was released March 18th, 1997. March 
mind you. Okay, this wasn't a summer blockbuster, and this wasn't an Oscar Hollywood. Yeah. Sorry, Oscar winner movie. This was March 18th. A, it was a St. Patrick's Day movie. <laughs> yeah, it's the day after St. Patrick's Day. Had the number one opening weekend. In fact, it broke the record for the largest March opening weekend ever. Oh, I bet. And it held that record for five years. Wow. I, I know you're going to ask me who broke it. Yeah, who broke um, it? I want to say, I think it was Ice Age. Really? Well, a kid's movie, you could see that. It went on to make $181 million domestically, which is about $347 million in today's dollars, and it finished as the number three highest-grossing film of 97, behind only Men in Black 1 and Jurassic Park 2. Wow. So, you know. Not uh, bad. That's pretty damn good, actually, (laughs) if you think about it. Not too shabby. Uh, a, A side note, a side note, this is a little fun one. I really should save this for the trivia, but I'll do it now since we talked about it. March 18th, right? Friday night. Sunday night, two days later on March 20th, was the Oscars. Actually, it might have been back then. I think it was still on Monday night. They moved it to Sunday maybe about 10 years ago, maybe more than that. But I think then it was Monday night, right? So let's just say March 21st, Monday night, Oscars. Jim Carrey's a presenter. They present him and they say... You know, here to present the award for whatever it was, you know, and star of Liar Liar, which opened to the number one, you know, March opening ever or whatever, Jim Carrey. And he comes out and everyone's clapping and everything. And the first thing he says is, how was your weekend? <laughs> Mine was good. <laughs> and, and everybody is tearing up. They even have a shot of Kurt Russell who's rolling in his seat. Oh, no kidding. Every, everyone, because everyone knew, like, dude, that that's that's going to be one of the biggest movies of the year. Oh, On yeah. just the first weekend. Oh, yeah. It had that, it yeah. had that impact. So, <laughs> Mine anyway. <was> <laughs> Mine was good. Mine was good. Probably still, yeah. It's good. So, anyway, all right. Sir, you're up. Log, Log line. me. Log, line. Log me. Go ahead and take a sip while I'm reading. <laughs> okay. Uh, it's according to IMDb. A pathological liar. Yeah. I almost said lawyer, but no, it's, it does say lie. A pathological liar lawyer finds his <laughs> career turned upside down when he inexplicably cannot physically lie for 24 whole hours. I love how it says physically lie because this was a very physical performance. Very, very. And he even says, he states several times in the film, I can't even ask a question if I know the answer is going to be dishonest. Yeah. Like, you know what I mean? Like, it's more than just I can't tell a lie. And we're going to get into this in the February episode. Yeah. I have some problems with movies that have magic. They set the rules and sometimes those rules are broken. This film does a really good job of not breaking the rules. It sets the rules and sticks by them. Yeah. But anyway, all right. Okay, here we go. We have The Beats. The Beats. Opening image, classroom. Son has a dishonest dad. Okay? You'll be ready for the closing That's a great, the first, that was the opening scene, right? By the way, the opening scene is priceless. Yeah, it's great. The teachers, it's, it's, what does your dad do for a living? He's a liar. And he's like, he's a liar. (laughs) And she's like, no, I'm sure you don't mean that. And he says, well, he goes to the court and argues with the judge. She goes, oh, he's a lawyer. And the look on the kid's face where he shrugs is kind of like, yeah, I what's guess. the fucking difference? <laughs> what's the difference? Yeah, it's great. And so it's one of the best opening shots, opening images of a, of a yep. comedy movie. It totally sets totally it up. Totally tees right? it up. <laughs> <laughs> Theme stated, at the six-minute mark, 
after Mom Audrey tells Fletcher, that's Jim Carrey, Audrey is played by, uh, oh, what's her name? You got IMDb there. Maura, Maura Tierney? Maura Tierney. From, um, uh, what, ER, right? ER. And, yeah. well, among other things, she's been in other She's been in a ton too. of stuff. But the, I mean, I was first introduced to her through ER, I think. Yeah, yep, yep. After Mom Audrey tells Fletcher, played by Jim Carrey, that her boyfriend Jerry, who's played by Carrie, Carrie Elwes, Carrie Elwes, Carrie Elwes, I always mispronounce his name, Elwes, from Princess Bride fame. Yes. <laughs> tells that her boyfriend Jerry will be moving to Boston. She says, referring to her son Max, Max will miss him. And to that, Fletcher's almost a little disheveled, and he says, I'll be here. And she gives him a look, right? Like, kind of like, will you? You know what I mean? Like, she says all that with her eyes, and then she just walks away. And he's a little miffed. He's like, come on, Max, it's time to go. Like, that's going to be his theme. Yeah. Is he really going to be there for Max? Right. Right? And the emotional shifts of that attempt prove to be way comical as the movie goes on because he does really want to be with his son. Yeah. That can't be denied. But his pathological lying is what gets in the way of that. Okay, so B story. Now, again, this one kind of fuzzy. A little. The B story normally comes in a half hour in, but we're introduced to Greta very early. Yeah. I named Greta his secretary as the confidant. Remember, in, in, in stories that have magic... There's a confidant, somebody that ends up knowing what's going on and can try to help them right, to right. achieve their spiritual goal. I believe that is the secretary, Greta. Now, she's introduced relatively early, but I believe that she is the B story, the confidant. She's normally covering his ass. Right. Inciting incident. <laughs> Max's hopes of going to WrestleMania are dashed when Fletcher gets a big case dumped on him. This scene starts with a barrage of four lies. This is important. Four lies. One... The office receptionist, June, by the way, Sherry O'Terry in her first role in a movie. That was her first Sherry role? Sherry O'Terry from SNL. That's wow. her first movie. Okay. This was following two years of SNL. So yeah. she started in SNL in, what, 95? She did 95, 96, and then this was her first movie role. So the office receptionist, June, with her weird hair. Two, the overweight guy. Three, the guy he doesn't know his name. <laughs> yes. And four, the guy with the zit on his nose. So there's our four it's more lies. more like a boil. <laughs> He's like, I've had so much, I'm ready to pop. He's like, so, yeah. And then what's best is after he walks away, Jim Carrey does that. He's, yeah. He's a shudder. He shudders. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So four straight lies going into the inciting incident, right? Okay. The debate begins. Fletcher, not realizing that his behavior is about to cause a major problem, continues his lying ways to win over new client Samantha Cole, which means if he if he debated at all about what happened the night before, he chose not to change his ways. Right. Mm -hmm. Again, we have a double bump. It's not just that he got the case dumped on him and he disappointed his son. Right. That wasn't enough. Because the next morning, he acts like everything's fine. He has the gift that Greta bought for him, by the way. He yeah. forgot his own son's fucking birthday. Right. Greta has to buy the gift. <laughs> he get, you know, he gives the gift, and he thinks everything's back to normal again. Right? Yeah. He's got the case with Samantha Cole, and everything's wonderful. And he goes to drop off his son with the mom. Which, by the way, has another funny scene where Jerry is all, oh, the mitt, the, the baseball mitt. Oh, that's really cool. We'll wrap it. We'll put it. We'll rub it with oil. We'll wrap it in a rubber band. He goes, great gift, Dad. And Jim Carrey goes, thanks, son. <laughs> Jerry is such a, oh, man. He's a magoo. He's a magoo. Right. He even says that later. He's a magoo. <laughs> but anyway, 
So, <clears throat> so that's not enough. We need a double bump. Here comes the double bump. As the inciting incident wasn't enough, we have a double bump when Fletcher misses Max's birthday party. This is the last straw for Max, who makes a birthday wish that for just one day, Fletcher cannot tell a lie. Yep. So now we're in act two. We break into two almost immediately. Okay. Now, I have a I little- I love his tr- first truth. Wait, wait. I have a treat for you. I have a treat for you. In my Beats breakdown, several times, let me see how many times. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight times. Eight times I wrote in green bold, shift. And that is to signify when being forced to tell the truth yeah. was actually a good thing. Okay, are you ready? Yeah, go for it. All right. <laughs> I can't wait. <laughs> Break into two. I've had better. His first, his first truth comes at the worst possible time. What'd she say? Was it good for you? <laughs> yeah. I've had better. I've had better. <laughs> I right? love that sequence after that, too, because it, he wakes up the next morning. I've had and, better. And yeah, then he's but brushing then when he's his brushing teeth, his teeth, he's laughing. He's laughing. He's like, I've had yeah, better. <laughs> better. Like, what the fuck? And then when he's standing outside the elevator, he laughs at it again. So anyway. Yeah, that uh, one no. kept giving, man. <laughs> so before you say, well, wait a minute. Every one of his forcing to tell the truth is a good thing. It's not necessarily because he gets into the elevator with the girl with the big boobs. That doesn't turn out very well for him when he has to tell the truth. He made for anyway, good outtake, though, at the end of the anyway, movie. we're jumping ahead here. So I've had better. The wish, which immediately comes true, catapults Fletcher into Act 2. We're now in the upside-down mirror-flip version of Act 1, where he's unable to tell a lie. Oh, he was able to tell a lie whenever he needed. Now he has to tell the truth. Fun and games. These are your trailer scenes, right? The premise delivery, why we go to see the movie. Yep. The trailer scenes and the premise of the premise. Taking Act 2 out for a spin... He tells the truth to a girl about the big boobs in the elevator, a bum who wants his money, and we revisit the four lies from just a day earlier. Yes. Right? Immediate payoff. (laughs) Right. He tells the truth to Sherry O'Terry. Whatever takes the focus off your head. (laughs) The overweight man. uh, What's he say? What's up, Fletcher? Just your cholesterol, fatty. (laughs) The guy, he doesn't know his name. You're not important enough for me to remember. And then, of course, is it, man. Now, these are all shifts I actually yeah. put. So, actually, it's more than eight. If you, It's eight plus three more. Here's why I put these as possible green shifts. Although the truth hurts, and he's mean to all four of these people, it's better to let people know where you stand with them, right? In yeah. a way, the fat guy needed to hear that. You know, maybe he goes home and gets on a treadmill. Who knows? Sure, it's a brutal way to tell somebody they're overweight. He doesn't. It's not like he doesn't know. But maybe he's like, oh, shit, if all my coworkers think that way, maybe I should do something about it. Right. Sherry O'Terry, maybe she fixes her hair after that. Who knows? I don't know. You know, I, I put those as, as positive shifts because I think I, I think it's important uh, not to lie to people. You know, the, the common one that you get a lot is is the guy that you don't know his name. How many times have you bumped into the same person over and over and hey, over? Hey, man. They told you their name four years ago. But fuck, man, you don't remember it. And you can't ask now. Now you can't ask. Right. Right? So it's like, how many times have we been through that? You know? Yeah. When when if you just, I mean, I, I had one of those, some, I know we go off on tangents. I'm trying to keep this down to a, a, a minimum amount of time. But- 
my girls are still in school. Yeah. Vivian Val, and a lot of times I see their parents, and I meet their parents. And I see them over and over well, again. You're their both... parents. You mean the school parents? I, I mean, the, I mean the kids. Yeah, the kids that are in their class. Yeah, I know what you meant. Right? Okay, thank you. <laughs> I skipped a step. This charcuterie is really kicking in. Um, so the other kids' parents, I meet them all the time. We go to pick them up at the same time, right? Some of them shop in my store, mm-hmm. and I'll see them, and it's so much like that. Hey, you, and then. <laughs> <clears throat> one girl. Hopefully, they're not listening ha- to this podcast. <laughs> I had to ask. No, I had to ask her. One of them because Valerie and this girl had become really good friends, and they yeah. want play dates and shit. So this girl comes into my store a lot because she works right by my store. So I just had to ask her. I said, I had to say, I go, "What is your name, by the way?" I don't think I ever heard. She said, "Oh, it's Bree," and I was like, "Okay, I'm Jerome." So, <laughs> so I nailed that one quick because yeah. I knew, I saw, I foresaw what was going to happen. That I would know this person for three years. <laughs> And never know right. her fucking name. So, so, so again, I, that's why I, I wrote them all as green shifts because it is important to get the truth out. But yeah, Jim Carrey's response, you're not important <laughs> enough to remember. Right? Yeah, okay. So maybe I never would have said that to somebody, a parent, right? A kid's parent from my kid's classroom. Oh my um, God. <laughs> all right. So now, oh, wait, by the way, after he gives all four of those truths, yeah. Greta, Greta says, Fletcher, and he goes, God's sakes, don't ask. (laughs) Don't ask, for God's sakes, don't ask. And he goes into his office. (laughs) Okay, so anyway. What a great premise for a movie, man. Oh, dude. (laughs) And it nails it. So we also have Fletcher's first day in court representing Mrs. Cole. Intro to the judge, right? Played by uh, Justin uh, Bernard. And we have the famous test of willpower with the blue pen. That's that's after that test. He also tells a cop that pulls him over about the about the parking tickets. I put that as a green shift. Got to get that off your back, man. That's something that's yeah. been sitting with him, right? After he so dealt that, with it, he's free. Right. You know, right. It's, exactly. it's a freeing experience. So that's one that you would lie about, but it telling the truth yep. is helpful. Okay. Audrey helps him get his car out of hock. He tells the uh, he tells off the parking garage guy, which is pretty funny because when he's like, "You scratched my car," and the guy's like, "That was there." And he's all, "You liar!" <laughs> it's like for him calling somebody else a liar. Like, how great is that, right? And I love his, his explanation for what he's gonna do about it. Yeah, what are you gonna do about it? <laughs> he's all nothing. <laughs> Because I'll just go to small claims court. You'll just stick me in the end anyway, and blah blah blah. blah. And yeah, then the guy take says, it up the tailpipe. "Yeah, I'm gonna take it up the tailpipe." And the guy goes, "You've been here before, haven't you?" <laughs> right. <laughs> so many yeah. great lines. <clears throat> I feel this is unfair to Legally Blonde. We didn't laugh this much well, while we talked about Legally Blonde. I, hey, but I, when listen, you're dealing with a Jim Carrey movie, man, <laughs> I'll put my cards on the table right now. It's a funnier movie. I think it's a funnier movie. Which one? Liar, liar. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I don't want to take away from, I mean, I think Legally Blonde is a great movie, but this is a funnier movie. But I mean, again, and and, and again, we're only at, we're only approaching the midpoint scene. But remember what I talked about? Legally Blonde was the 22nd highest grossing film domestically of that year. Yeah. This was number three. Yeah. Like, there's a reason, right? Jim Carrey. Yeah. Well, it's and, just on a different level, and he, it, the movie is just uh, ten times funnier. Well, I that's think. what I mean because Jim Carrey's leading and probably writing half the stuff in it in the final product. Yeah, I mean, crap. Yeah. Um, okay, so <laughs> we get to the midpoint scene. Uh, I actually wrote this quote as the midpoint scene. 
I'm a bad father. Mm. Mm-hmm. So why is that a shift? Because he stops, right? Right after he says that, he realizes. I'm a bad father. I'm a bad father. Yeah. Like, he realizes he just told the truth. Right. Right? So. Yeah, that was powerful. Uh, that was good. Now, there's a two-scene false victory here. Fletcher finally finds out what the curse is, and he finds out it's his son's birthday wish, right? Right. So that's your that's sort of a tangible goal, right? Because at the beginning- Yeah, figure out was, how he, to fix this, right? Well, not, yeah. Well, the first thing is, why is this happening, right, right? right? Like, his tangible goal would be, what the hell is happening, and how do I fix it? <laughs> at that point, he achieves that. Oh, my God, my son made a birthday wish. Well, I'll just have to fix that, right? So he feels it's a victory because now he knows what it is and how it can be stopped. But the twin scene is where he goes to Max's school and tries to get him to unwish it, which is what Blake Snyder would call it a wrong way goal. So you get this a lot in these movies with magic, right? Again, I don't want to tease too much about the February episode, but I just watched that movie and I was thinking about wrong way goals the entire time. But anyway, it's the wrong way to try to fix a problem, right? That's what the wrong way goal is. He tries to get his son to unwish it, and he won't. And not only does he... Oh, by the way, it's immediate bad mm-hmm. guys closing in right after the midpoint scene. Right. Because the unwish fails miserably and immediately, because not only does he get slapped by a... What, I'm assuming he's a teacher on the playground. He he says, let me try this out. And he goes up and says something. Obviously, he says something very derogatory. He yeah. just slaps him. Is either a teacher or probably like a mom that was volunteering or something. Yeah, like yeah. a volunteer mom or something. <laughs> But he's slapped even harder by Max when Max tells him, you're the only only one that makes me feel bad. Mm. Right? Like, that's the same as the I'm a bad father moment. Right? And the moment at the beginning when Audrey says, Max will miss him. And he says, I'll be here. Like, these are moments where he's realizing, like, fuck, I'm really letting my son down. You know? So that's bad guys closing in. We have a few more to add. Things continue to spiral badly. We get back to the office and he confides in confidant Greta his secret. She tests him on his lies and he tells her the truth so she quits, right? Another great segment. Now, I know you're thinking, how can she be the confidant if she quits? Well, you know where it's going to end up, Mm -hmm. right? So... She quits, and then there's the boardroom scene where Miranda tries to ambush him, and he uses it to his advantage. Green shift, yeah, right? Yeah. Telling the truth is a good thing. Yeah. Makes Mr. Allen laugh instead of getting yeah. fired. Right. Instead of getting fired, he's tearing up the room. One of my favorite moments of that entire scene, by the way. And by the way, I laugh out loud in that scene every fucking time I watch it. Without fail. It doesn't matter how many times I've seen it. I laugh out loud every time. And one of the best parts is where there's a moment of silence. They don't know how the boss is going to take it. Right. And the boss starts laughing. And the first thing the boss says when he laughs is, do Simmons. And he looks at Simmons and he goes, Simmons is old. That's his first go-to. That's That's his first insult. Simmons is old. (laughs) He should have been out of the game years ago, but he doesn't want to stay at home because he can't stand his wife. And then he goes around the room, and here's another green And then green the climax truth. of that scene when he points at the woman that brought him and in there. And says, slut! <laughs> right, exactly. He's telling the truth. Isn't that ironic? He's telling the truth. He points to her and says, slut. It's not just an insult, folks. Right. He's telling the truth. All right, so courtroom scene. He needs a continuance, but he can't get one. He tells the truth about needing to use the bathroom, right? Mm-hmm. And that's that's a green shift. 
because it helps him get a continuance, at least a little bit of one. He gets to go to the bathroom because he tells the judge, right? I hear holding your urine can help cause <laughs> cancer or something. And the guy's like, is that true? Well, in that case, we well, better cause he, it. Yeah. It was what got his attention was, was something about affecting like sexual performance or right, something. Right. He's like, He's, well, I better take a break then. Yeah, let's take a break then. <laughs> right. So, so the green shift, it worked. Telling yeah. the truth worked. But it is it true? The, it must be. <laughs> it causes his bad. Right. That's another great. But is that true? It must be. Right. So, but that directly causes his bathroom beat up scene, which is another wrong way goal. It's 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 the wrong way to try to solve your problem. What the hell are you doing? I'm kicking my ass. All right. More bad guys closing in as he truthfully tells the judge that he can go on despite his bathroom injuries. And he meets Mr. Falk on the front steps and realizes he can't even ask dishonest questions. Perhaps the biz- biggest example of the green shift is where, when, where telling the truth is helpful. He wins Samantha's case by uh, getting her to admit that she lied, which is ironic, by the way, yeah, lied right. on her driver's license in order to get married, thus nullifying the prenup and awarding her the money. Right. right? That's all in the bad guys closing in. I know it seems like a victory at the end, but it's really not because immediately after that is the all is lost. Right. He realizes how right after like, winning the case doomed he is. Yeah. Yeah. He hits rock bottom when Mrs. Cole now wants full custody. He even said, but but you said he was a good father. Actually, I would argue he hit rock bottom when his boss shook his hand. Oh, wait, we're not there yet. Uh, I know. I said, this, is all, this is all the same scene. This okay. is the all yeah, is lost all the scene, same right? scene. It's all yeah. the same scene. Yep. But but. But what's important is she goes, he says, but you said he was a good father, right? Yeah. About, yeah, the, yeah. about the Mr. Cole. And she goes, who cares? I want to hit him where it hurts. If we get full custody, I get an extra, what was it? Like 10 grand 000, a month 10 or grand something. a month in pay. And he goes, you just won $11 million. Right. <laughs> like, but anyway. Yep. Okay. So in that same scene, yes, he realizes that the lust for winning the case tore kids from their father. Yeah. A good father, right? Which he is not. Actually, I actually have what you're talking about, the handshake. I put that as the dark night of the soul. It's the mm, debate part. Yeah. Because he realizes he fucked up. He's at rock bottom, right? Yep. But yep. now there's that debate. What do I do next? And this is what helps him push him over the edge. Fletcher's appalled at his boss's belief that kids, quote unquote, give you leverage. Right. In a divorce case. He shuns his handshake and openly admits he did the wrong thing, which likely will cost him his partnership, if not his job. Here's it comes a green shift. He proceeds to tell off the judge. Now, why is that a green shift? Well, actually, no, I'm sorry. The green shift is telling off the boss. Yeah. Right? Yeah, because yeah. he doesn't want to work for him anyway. Not if he's going to be like that, right? Right. But then he tells off the judge in addition, and that's your break into three, right? By telling off the judge, he lands himself in contempt. In effect, he won't be able to see Max before he leaves, yep, thus making him a liar again. And as they're hauling him off to jail, he's yelling, I'm Jose Canseco! I'm Jose Canseco! <laughs> All right. We're in Act 3. Five-point finale. Are you ready? Yeah, I'm ready. Here we go. <laughs> Gathering the team. A and B stories collide as Greta hears about his honesty and bails him out of jail. The confident comes through. And what does Jim Carrey say standing on the steps? You know, this truth set telling stuff's pretty cool. Yeah, right? Right? There you go. <laughs> All right, execution of the plan. Fletcher goes to the airport to stop them from leaving. High tower surprise. The flight has already closed up and the plane is heading out. He missed them. Dig down deep. 
He's got to find a way to stop the plane. <laughs> so he gets on the runway and, and takes the runway stairs, and he's driving it out to the runway. In the most ridiculous, funniest way possible. Most ridiculous, <laughs> nonsensical thing. And those stairs, mind you, are as fast as the plane right. is going. Like, who the fuck? I thought it was kind of funny that the guy's fixing the stairs as he takes off. Yeah. Like, what was he installing a new fucking engine? Because that know. thing is taking off and it's going leg with leg to leg with the fucking airplane. I like how Jim Carrey's like, "You did a great job." Yeah, did a great job. <laughs> Execution of the new plan. After hijacking the stairs, he runs down the plane and gets them to stop by throwing his shoe at the. <laughs> They stop. The plane stops. He stops. He crashes. And, of course, it leads us to the climax while laying there with two broken legs. Didn't he say the good news is I I broke two legs. They can't take me to jail. I broke both my legs. They can't take me to jail. So while laying there with broken legs, he's truthful to Max about letting him know that he has learned his lesson, right? He learned to tell the truth. Um, By the way, this is a little, little trivia, too, as well. Jim Carrey played a character called Fire Marshal Bill when he was on the sketch comedy show in Living Color. Yeah. He's in that scene. I don't know if you know that. When the little boy says to his, or when the the mom and Jerry show up with the little boy, and she says, that's my husband, that's my husband, you know, because the cop's trying to hold him back. Yeah. Oh, you can't come in here yet. And she's like, that's my husband. In the background is Jim Carrey dressed as Fire Marshal Bill on his radio. On his radio. I missed that. You can look it up. Just YouTube it. It's hilarious. Oh, my God. That's great. (laughs) So he makes an appearance in the background of that scene. I'll have to put the Um, link to that YouTube in the show notes. Now, he sees that he's passed the 24 hours of of the truth-telling window, but that's important because he wanted to be honest. He wanted to show that he was right. telling the truth. He achieves his spiritual goal. Resolution, Audrey and Jerry split, and Audrey and Max are not going to go to Boston. The closing image, a year later and after a birthday candle kiss between the parents, Max is happy. He now has an honest father. Yeah, and assumably a reunited family. Oh, yeah. I think it eludes the fact they're getting back together. Yeah. 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 Now, a couple of funny parts. So, <laughs> couple? Uh, I don't Well, yeah. In addition to all the funny shit we said, there are little things that I thought were funny, like like when he says at the beginning, when Jim Carrey says, oh, I, I didn't think after our marriage you'd have enough energy to give it another go. And she goes, well, you forget when we were married, I wasn't having sex nearly as much as you were. Yeah. Burn. <laughs> and, he's, and he's all, ouch. <laughs> <laughs> the ref takes a point away. <laughs> that was a good line. But yeah, I mean, there's so many, so many throughout the film. When, when Greta's telling him off and tells the story about, by the way, that's trivia as well, I think. The producers got that story. That really happened oh, to somebody. Oh, about the lawyer. Where that, a burglar or the falls burglar, through yeah. somebody's skylight or something and cuts themselves and they sued the person right. and won. And she goes, he won $7,000. Now, is that fair? And he goes, no. I would have gotten them 10. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> so a lot of great lines in this movie. Um, <clears throat> all right, trivia. Yeah. You ready? At the beginning, he runs into two people on the front stairs. The first one is Christopher Darden, famous from the OJ trial. And Darden says, how'd it go in there, Fletcher? And he says, just another victory for the wrongfully accused. Right. And Darden says, yeah, right. Okay, we all know Jeez. what that is. Eh? The other person he sees on the stairs is an actor named Randall Tex Cobb, who he's the guy that says, hey, you want your coat back or you want your jacket back? And he says, no, you'll probably need it. Here's a couple of things here. There's a deleted scene in the beginning of the movie 
where he gets that guy off. Like there's a court scene where he actually gets him off. Okay. He's the actor that is in the beginning of Ace Ventura. Oh, really? That he delivers the broken package to at the very beginning. <laughs> Right? Yeah. That, and he's trying to kidnap the dog. And then when he's trying to get away and the guy comes after him with the bat, that's the same actor. Okay. But anyway, what's even more funny about that is it, it this is still a funny part, but it holds more weight if they had kept that deleted scene in. He's the guy in the phone where later in the movie, Jim Carrey goes, Stop breaking the law, <laughs> asshole. That's the guy. Oh, because, yeah. Because he's in trouble again. Okay. Just yep. as he that said makes he sense. would be. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Which is another funny part. He wants your legal advice. Stop, Stop breaking the law, asshole. Which he's telling the truth. Not just to stop breaking the law, but the fact that he's an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, a couple other interesting trivia. Jim Carrey turned down the role of Dr. Evil in Austin Powers in order to do this film. Coincidentally, Mike wow. Myers Mike Myers was offered Liar Liar and turned it down in order to make Austin Powers. What? Yes. Wow. Could you imagine the flip on that? Yeah. I, I that, can't. Yeah, that's crazy. It would have been two completely different movies. Yeah. Because they yep. would have both put their own... Spins and you know the yeah. own their own improv probably right. right and the fact that Mike Myers ended up playing Doctor Evil himself yeah. right when yeah. he couldn't get Jim Carrey that's amazing is, that's yeah that's that's interesting <laughs> so so the film is dedicated to Jason Bernard who played the judge who sadly died of a heart attack shortly after the film was done shooting mm. Bernard got his big break you would know this I know you've known that judge right you've seen him before yeah what was he in he, he got his big break in a recurring show. A recurring television miniseries, V, back in the 80s. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. Yep. I love that show. <laughs> he also famously played Sandra Bullock's boss in While You Were Sleeping. Okay. Yep. Okay. That's all I got. What are your thoughts? I mean, come on. Where do I start? <laughs> I love this movie. I'm, You know. So one of the characters that I remember, like so many of these characters I remember from other things. You know, obviously we talked about Jerry, you know, and Princess Bride. But yes. Dana Appleton, who is the attorney at the end of the movie, the opposing attorney, She, her name is Swoozy Kurtz. Uh, Su- Susie Kurtz. She, she's... She's known, man. She's yeah. done a lot of shit. Well, it's funny because I recognized her from one episode of Lost. Really? Yeah. She was in one episode of Lost. She played uh, John Locke's mom in Lost. Hmm. And it was wow. like a flashback scene. And But it was a great... It, I think her character in, in the, like John Locke's story arc hinged so much on who she was. And uh-huh. and uh, and that that how that whole how his life played out, but I just remembered her, and it you know it was a great performance she she gave in Lost, but but yeah you're right she's been in a ton of stuff, so yeah it was just a um, great cast man. They... I remember her. I, I want to say the first time I saw her, and again she'd been around forever, but I'm I was young at the time, you know what I mean. So we're talking I want to say 1993. I had I was 18 years old, and there was an HBO movie called and the band played on which was about how kind of aids spread oh yeah yeah it was yeah based on a book by randy schultz i think i saw that it loaded with stars yeah she was one of the people she has a okay. huge 
she has a huge impact. I wouldn't say she has a huge role. She's in one scene. Right. But like you said, like with Lost, it's an impactful scene. Well, and, and Lost um, came out several years after this. So I just re-watching it, I remembered she was in Lost, you know. And so. she and and that's one of those she in her scene in that movie, she has the line that they would show in trailers for that movie because it's so impactful. Right. She's one that that received AIDS in a blood transfusion. That's her character. Oh wow. In her scene, she says, almost looking right into the camera, "Are you telling me they knew they were giving AIDS to people and continued to do it?" Wow. So that was because the the blood bank was refusing to do testing or anything. So that, you know, that again, that's like like you said for Lost. She's in one scene of that movie. But it's an impactful scene, yeah. and it's a line of dialogue they show in the trailer. Yeah. I loved you know her I mean? outtake where she called Jim Carrey a overactor. Overactor, yeah. <laughs> but if you listen, at, 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 while everyone's laughing, she says, "Tom, Tom made me do that." Tom, the director, Tom yeah. Shady. She's like, "He put me up to it. He put me up to it." That was great. Yeah. So, so I mean, again, they love this director, right? Yeah. Guys like that, and I, I could totally see him pulling Swoozy Kurtz aside and saying, "Hey, when he starts doing his back and forth, call him an overactor." <laughs> <laughs> yeah no good stuff man this was a fun episode i enjoyed I actually, doing a couple comedies you know yeah, i i have to break into one of my lightsabers before we do six degrees <laughs> yeah i've been doing all yeah i've been know, getting liquored up while you took the show man it's well, i, I love been, this job <laughs> but I, yeah but i've been doing so much of the sharkerita i didn't get to it so here we go are you ready mm-hmm. this, this is an honor of six degrees oh yeah okay so because we were delayed, I don't have the names I gave you. I gave, I know who, I know the one was the kid, right? In Liar yes. Liar. So you're going to have to tell me, who did I okay. give you? <laughs> Boy, I can't I remember. The... It, I could just make anybody up at this point. No, no. there is so, a. So Justin Cooper does play the kid. I remember there was an older actor and a younger actor, right? There is. The The other actor was James Reed, who okay. plays uh, Ella Wood's uh, dad. Right. Plays uh, Reese Witherspoon's father in, That's right. in uh, Legally Blonde. So for those of us, you're pretty familiar, I'm sure, by now of Six Degrees. But you might not be familiar so much with our rules. Now, our rules are I can't use either of the films that we're, that Dis- we're using today. Discussed today, yeah. Yeah. So I have to pick two different ones to connect. Ella Woods' father in Legally Blonde to Justin Cooper, who plays Max in Liar Liar. Yep. And I, Side I, note. I went that way to, you know, I, I like to try to make it hard, not to stump you, but because we want to know if, if it is possible to connect any two actors within six degrees. And the yes. harder you make it, the more interesting it is, I think. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So a couple of side notes here before I tell you. They're both on General Hospital. Now, oh. at, at different times, though, they weren't. They never worked together, okay. but they both had stints on General Hospital. But they both worked times. probably with other actors that were, but, but we don't sure. use TV but shows. But we don't use TV shows, right, 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 right. Now, and if I could use Liar Liar, it's in two. <laughs> because James Reed was in Blue Thunder in 1983 with Jason Bernard, who's in Liar Liar. So if I could have used Liar Liar, it would have yeah, been in two. Yeah. But, but I still got it in three. All right. James Reed is in Eight Men Out. The 1988 movie about the uh, Chicago White Sox scandal. Eight men out. Um, okay. With Richard Edson, who I know you know who he is. So you remember, this isn't one of the movies, but do you remember Ferris Bueller's Day Off? Yeah. Where they take the, the Ferrari to the parking garage? 
Yes. And he says, do you speak English? And the guy goes, what country do you think this is? <laughs> That's Richard Edson. So you know his face because yeah. he's actually been in a lot of movies. Yes. He's been in a shitload of movies. Yes. Yeah. So that's that's him. He's Richard. That's Richard Edson. So, but he was in Platoon. Okay. He was in Platoon. But anyway, so that shows you his range. He's all over the place. So Richard Edson was also in a 1985 movie called Jury Duty. I want to say with Pauly Shore as the lead. Okay. With Brian Doyle Murray, who was in Dennis the Menace Strikes Back. Oh, no. Dennis the Menace Strikes Again, 1998, with Justin Cooper. So that's three connections. Eight Men Out, Jury Duty, and Dennis the Menace Strikes Again. I'm going to throw a a flag on the play. What? I'm going to throw a flag. What's the flag? Hold on. Let's look it up. I'm looking up Dennis the Menace. Yeah. Strikes Again. Take a look at it on IMDb. It's still a feature-length film. It wasn't on the big screen. Oh, we've done we've done shit like that before. We've done straight-to-video movies. This is straight-to-video. I we've thought it had to be. To this is the silver before. screen happy hour. When you, <laughs> you fucking prick, <laughs> you, you bastard. Now listen, we we have done straight-to-video before when you have given me names that. You know, I you thought can't you were going to go to the Magnificent. No, that was a TV you series. You can't be moving the goalposts here. All he, right? This kid was only in TV in a couple movies. That's what I'm saying. So you got to give me this straight to video movie. <laughs> it's still a feature length film it's, that requires right. film cameras, film. <laughs> film actors, a director. It's still a film set, you ass clown. Okay, well, I'll give it to you with an asterisk. <laughs> Fuck. I'm the Houston Astros all of a sudden. <laughs> <laughs> Unbelievable. So yeah. you see, you hear how he does me? He does me wrong, people. Anyway. I'm looking, there's only man, Adventures of Ragtime. He did that. That must have been a feature like film on the big screen because it doesn't say straight to video. And then Liar Liar. Those are the only two movies I think he did. Yeah. Wait a minute. See y'all. Yeah. That's it. He was on an episode of Full House, episode of ER. Huh. Now, I, I did read like a bit of trivia. This kid went on to become, I think he's a forts, forts, I, man, a couple shots of larceny going to my head. <clears throat> I think he's a Fox Sports commentator. I think I read that somewhere. Justin Cooper? Yeah. Yeah, I think I saw that too. Interesting. Yeah. Well, good good job, man. <laughs> This was fun. <laughs> so much fun, man. We got to do comedies again. I enjoy mixing it up. We got to do a couple of these a year, maybe, where we throw some good comedies in. Yeah, we've had some We've had some heavy-themed movies, man. <laughs> yeah, the World War movies, man. It's like, uh, yeah. they're Although, good. Although, ironically, a dark episode like Silence of the Lambs is the one you almost died on from <laughs> laughter. So sometimes we can make light of just about anything. Yeah, 100%. Um. <laughs> 100%. I would like to still consider this for a future episode. Maybe another Jim Carrey movie, because I think Jim Carrey got a lot of inspiration from Jerry Lewis. Sure. And I could imagine doing maybe an old Jerry Lewis movie and pairing up with a Jim Carrey movie, because, I mean, the physical comedy that Jerry Lewis brought to the screen, man. So and a lot of right. people today don't know. They never seen those movies. A lot of kids probably never saw yeah. a Jerry Lewis movie, and yeah, it would be fun to do a, a matchup like that: Jerry Lewis and Jim Carrey. So that reminds me, you—I know, almost forgot about the other trivia, 
was that Jim Carrey is quoted as saying um, that it was one of the most exhausting movies he's ever made. That every time he he would go home every night completely drained, completely exhausted, oh, because bet. they would do so many different takes uh, of everything. Um, and that uh, I can't remember the number the the number, but I want to say they burned. They burned more footage than Titanic. Oh my god! <laughs> it came out in the same year. I want to say that they they because just be, you know unused Titanic wow. used theirs, <laughs> but like liar liar went through more footage that was unused than any wow. other film. I would love to see some of those outtakes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, could you just imagine? And and I remember people saying on the set of The Office that Steve Carell's the same way. Yeah. That, you know, what you see in an episode of The Office took about 20 takes to get there. Yeah. And the other 19 were no less funny. Well, they were yeah, all funny. different. I mean, versions. have you watched the new Office episodes on Peacock? No, they have new Office episodes? Yeah, so we exhausted. We we watched The Office a million times on, I think, Netflix when it was on. And then Peacock got it. So to make people come back back and watch it with commercials because we don't pay for you right, know, we, right, we get yeah. the commercials on yeah peacock. peacock gives you commercials so does so, so does freebie in order to watch it they i mean they got us to come back because there's a lot of footage that were never in the original episodes wow they they, they put a lot of the outtakes in back in so I'm watching it, and I'm like, and all of a sudden I'm busting out laughing because I'm hearing stuff I've never heard before. It's hilarious. Yeah, yeah. You should do. You should pull it up and watch some. That's such a funny show. <laughs> Ironically, Jim Carrey makes an appearance on that show. When did you know that? When I don't remember. He's the he's the Finger Lakes guy. So near, I want to say it was when they're trying to find the new the new branch manager. It had to have been one of the final episodes before Dwight finally gets his shot being Dwight. And they start interviewing all these weird people. Jim Carrey is one of the people they interview. And all he keeps talking about is how he's from the Finger Lakes. <laughs> I don't remember that part. I remember when they were interviewing all the different, like it was a bunch of comedians that yeah. got interviewed. It was great. Yeah. But I don't like, remember Jim Carrey. YouTube, The Office, Jim Carrey, Finger Lakes. And okay. you'll see his, his very small part in it. All right. But, but yeah. Wow. So everything goes full circle with comedy and Jim Carrey. <laughs> all right. So looking ahead, next month. February, I'm assuming people are listening while we're in January. Yep. Next month, February, is our Valentine's Day special where we pick a couple of romance films that have to do with bending of time. Yes, time travel, yep. The two films are About Time with Rachel McAdams and Donald Gleason, and the other one is, what was it, Somewhere in Time with Christopher Reeve and Jane Seymour? That sounds right. Um, yeah. So, again, we're just throwing this out there right now. We don't have any specs in front of us. So yeah. if we're getting the names wrong, sorry. Um, but anyway, that's our that's on our agenda for next month. I've already begun <laughs> the work on it, and some of it has already pissed me off, but we'll get to that yeah, next I, month. I, I'm, I can't wait. I just can't wait. That's all I'm going to say. Right. Keep drinking and keep watching. Keep drinking, keep watching. Uh, go support your local cinema. Yeah.